Okay. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Chabura. Today we have an exciting public shiur with Rabbi Chaim Angel. Today will be the first installment of a three-part Tanakh series with Rabbi Angel exploring uh, literalism, superstition, and archaeology, where today we will dive into Tanakh and superstition, debates within traditional commentary. Uh, for those who are new to the Chabura, welcome. A little about us, the Chabura is a physical and virtual Bet Midrash with hundreds of members from around the world. Inspired by the classical Sephardi approach, we at the Chabura strive to know God by embracing the world through the lens of Torah. Other than fascinating uh, public and private shiurim, we have an active online and physical network, a journal, get-togethers, and a publishing house. Please God, very soon we'll be coming out with a book on Pesach featuring essays from the Chachamim of the past, the teachers of the present, and scholars of the future. I highly recommend all to join this wonderful initiative. A little about our speaker, Rabbi Chaim Angel is the National Scholar of the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals. Rabbi Angel has taught advanced biblical courses at Yeshiva University since 1996, lectures widely throughout North America, and consults yeshivot worldwide on developing curricula. He has authored or edited 19 uh, books and has published over 130 scholarly articles. Rabbi Angel's scholarship focuses on the interaction between traditional and academic approaches to Bible study. He is editor of Conversations, the journal of the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals. Rabbi Angel previously served as rabbi of Congregation Sharit Israel in New York City and a rabbinic scholar at Congregation Kehilat Yishirun in New York. He received his BA in Jewish Studies from Yeshiva College, his MA in Bible uh, from the Bernard Ravel Graduate School, his MS in Jewish Education from the Israeli Graduate School of Jewish Education, and his rabbinical ordination from the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary of Yeshiva University. He lives in Teaneck, New Jersey, with his wife and four children. Uh, as usual, all our classes are recorded and will be available on our website after. If you're listening on YouTube or a podcast, please like, subscribe, share, leave a review, and help us share cutting-edge Torah. If you have any questions, please raise your hands or post in the chat box. And please, God, there will also be time for questions at the end. With that said, thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Rabbi Angel, it is a privilege to have you with us, and the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Ohad. I want to thank the Chabura for inviting me. Sina was a wonderful person to connect with. And so thank you very much, Ohad, for, for taking care of it today. Uh, the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals has a very similar wavelength to the Chabura, at least I, as I understand it from those conversations. We're all about the combination of bringing in the wisdom of past and present of the entire Jewish world rather than one specific part of the globe. We're very interested in bridging traditional classical commentary with contemporary scholarship in a way that's meaningful and religiously engaging. And we believe in, while on the one hand being squarely involved in tradition and trying to create multiple avenues within tradition that different people can enter at their level, we embrace the entire community far beyond where they are at because everybody should have at least access to the Torah. So once again, thank you to the Chabura and all the leadership and the, and the participants in making this happen. So talk number one is about Superstition and Tanakh. So I'm a Tanakh person and I care about Jewish thought a lot. And part of this question is really a very interesting one because I don't need to tell you that, you know, of all of Rambam's many failures as an educator and one who tried to be a revolutionary, I think his greatest lack of success was in trying to root superstition out from the Jewish community. He tried very, very, very hard. He tried to stamp it out. I think if you want to see the extent of his... Uh, you know, disappointment, you can go to the city of Tzfat in Israel today and go to all those gift shops. Last time I was there with my wife, 
I thought what was interesting is not just that they were selling every imaginable charm and holy thing imaginable at a very hefty price, one might add, that I was expecting. I thought the part that was shocking the most was that many of these things were labeled as this charm is in accordance with Rambam's view. I like of all authorities to quote here, this isn't your man. Find somebody else. Somebody might like it, but not, not Rambam. So I, I, I'm like, this is, this is a Rambam were alive. He'd be turning in his grave, that type of thing. And, and what can you do? Uh, that being said, the Tanakh is not Rambam. The Tanakh is God's word. And, all, and many, many, many passages at least open up an interesting conversation. And that's what today is going to be about. Uh, Professor Yechezkel Koifman, who is the head of the Bible department at Hebrew University in the middle of the 20th century, he was an expert not only in Tanakh, but also in ancient Near Eastern literatures. By then, there was a lot published. And he marveled at the sheer genius of Tanakh. Marveled. He's like, how could anybody in that world have come up with these ideas? They were so, frankly, different and fundamentally different from anything in any culture anywhere nearby. It was simply breathtaking. Just to give a few examples, the idea that there is one God alone was a revolution. But the bigger difference is that our God is above nature. And therefore, there is no room to manipulate God through magic or incantations, any of these things. And there are no forces that compete with God. God is absolutely free. Nothing can rival God's power in the universe. Okay, that's a big revolution that nobody thought of and could have thought of in the pagan setting that they were in. Their gods, first of all, there were a lot of them, but more importantly, they adhered in nature. There were forces that could compete with the gods. There were other, the gods could compete with one another. Their gods were not free. Our God is absolutely free and nobody can tell God what to do. Number two, rituals cannot independently harness any magical powers. When we perform rituals, we're doing it as Avodat Hashem. We're serving our creator. God told us what to do. Not so paganism. Paganism, their rituals did stuff to the universe, to their gods, to whatever they hoped to achieve. They worked automatically. Okay, another one is, pagans believe that evil inheres in the universe. We don't think so. Tanakh is very clear. God made a very good universe. And the only force that threatens that goodness is human evil. And that's if people choose to do the wrong thing. There are no other forces out there, no metaphysical forces, nothing at all that creates evil outside of us. Are human beings acting the wrong way? Uh, the fact that we have absolute standards of good and evil. Pagans couldn't have imagined that because who exactly could give you an absolute standard? The gods themselves were so flawed and they were always in disagreement with each other and trying to destroy each other. There certainly was no sense whatsoever that there was a good and an evil. Uh, the, again, the only other thing that's, that threatens God's perfect creation is, is human immorality. And that's based on choice. We obviously can choose to do the right thing and should make that choice. And then Mashiach can come. Okay, these were such revolutionary ideas that the pagans had no clue what we were talking about. And so Professor Koifman just marvels at the sheer genius of Tanakh because it's not just a slight improvement over everything around. It is an entirely different system so any believing Jew would say that's because God made it, right? So God was the genius behind all of that. Koifman, being an academic, couldn't say it that way. He said whether it was God or an extreme genius, either way, he just marveled at how could anybody in that world have stood outside of it that way. Now, the good news is nearly all of Tanakh matches what I just told you perfectly. So much so that when you have seemingly magical sounding stories, the rabbis of the Mishnah get involved and say there's just no way that it's magical. One story is when Moshe Rabbeinu 
raises his arms in Sefer Shemot, in the book of Exodus, and thanks to the, the arm raising, Bnei Israel can win a battle against Amalek. That's so weird, right? As great as Moshe Rabbeinu is, the great, greatest human being who ever lived, uh, the idea that his arms should somehow impact on the battle is just strange. Another one that's strange is when Hashem himself, Bnei Israel, are being bitten by serpents in the desert, having complained about man, so snakes, God unleashes snakes at them, they start getting chomped by the snakes, okay? Then God tells Moshe to make a metal statue of the snake, which Moshe puts on a pole and raises it. And by seeing that pole, that heals the Israelites. That's in chapter 21 of Sefer Bimidbar. These sound kind of magical. So the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah, you think it's a Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah, it's talking about the laws of Shofar and things like that. Yes, many Mishnayot in, in Rosh Hashanah do just that. But it, this Mishnah gets involved here in source number one because it's just, they have to deal with it. When do Moshe's arms impact on a battle? And the answer is, it's not possible because Moshe is not a magical holy man. There's no such thing as that in our tradition. If they looked at Moshe's arms and then thought of Hashem, then they would win. Why? Because God is in charge. Not Moshe's arms. No magical force can do that. It has to do with human behavior and people making good choices and then Hashem reacting. Because only Hashem could do that. Okay? And similarly, if they weren't thinking about God, if they were doing the wrong thing, then God would let them lose or at least fall behind, retreat in the battle. That's the snake on the pole thing. Once again, since when does the statue have any medical benefit? Same point. They look at the snake and then they think of Hashem and they repent. Then that could heal them. The Mishnah is not giving the simplest reading of the text at all. The simplest reading, it sounds like Moshe's arms have power. It sounds, it sounds like that statue has some kind of efficacy. The Mishnah says that is not even possible within the biblical tradition. We don't have this kind of magic. Hashem alone is in charge. And therefore, they reinterpret against the smoothest read of the text and say that there's no such thing as superstition in our tradition. Very, very good. Now, that settles it then. So we're done. Thank you for coming. Well, actually, maybe we have to, maybe there's a little bit more that needs to be described. There still are areas where our Parshanut, our classical rabbinic commentaries, have different approaches to how to deal with certain narratives. I'll give you one example. When a human being in Tanakh blesses somebody, or a human being in Tanakh curses somebody, could that matter? For example, can't help but notice that Rivka and Yaakov were very concerned that Yitzchak bless Yaakov and not Esau. So there's a what if in the story, which of course never happened. What if they blew it and Yitzchak felt the goat fuzz and is like, this isn't Esau, this is goat fuzz. Get out of here. And then he goes ahead and blessed Esau. Would that have mattered? So we don't know because that's not the way that it worked. It is clear that the characters in the story believe that Yitzchak's blessing matters. And Yitzchak himself says, after realizing that he has been fooled, in source number two, 
Who was it that fed me and I blessed him already? Well, too late. No backseas. There's nothing I could do anymore. It sounds very much like I, I gave the blessing. I'm really terribly sorry. Yeah, it was a mistake. But a blessing has been unleashed into the atmosphere and that person gets it. It's really what it sounds like. So is that true? Is it that Yitzchak's unwitting blessing to the wrong person can have power? So the answer, as far as the Torah is concerned, is absolutely not. Yitzchak has no power. Yitzchak was fulfilling the divine will by blessing Yaakov. Goes back to source number three. We, already, we, we as readers know more than Yitzchak knows at that moment. We know that Rivka, while pregnant with her twins, already got a prophecy about this in source three. So let's just take it with the smoothest way that is typically understood. There's, there's room for fuss in a longer shiur on that, on that pasuk. Uh, but for our purposes now, the elder will serve the young. And that's certainly how Rivka took it, because she goes ahead and favors Yaakov from the get-go. It is very plain that Yitzchak's blessing Yaakov is sort of what God wanted to happen. God didn't manipulate anything. Yitzchak, Rivka, and Yaakov chose to get the blessing the way that they did. Yitzchak then unwittingly blessed Yaakov. But that blessing matches what Hashem wanted. So in very dramatic form, uh, two of our more recent commentators, Malbim in the 19th century in, in Berlin, Germany, and then Nechama Leibowitz of the 20th century in, in Israel, uh, they say, if Yitzchak would have blessed Esav, Yaakov would still be our patriarch. Yitzchak doesn't have the power in the story. Hashem does. The characters manipulate things without even realizing that they're simply achieving what Hashem wanted all along. And we know that because the text told us. Not just because that's what we would like to think. That doesn't in any way take away the free will decisions that require a full-blown shiur, a different shiur than today, in terms of judging the actions of Rivka and Yaakov. That's a really important shiur to give. But that's not the point of this shiur. This shiur, all I'm trying to say is that there's no way that the blessing comes across as powerful, because it's not. A human blessing is not powerful, even if the characters in the story think that it is. Another example of this, by the way, is, goes way back in, in time to Noah. Noah, after the flood, gets drunk, and really drunk, uh, takes off his clothing, and his sons react very differently to finding this fact out. So Ham is obviously in some way very disrespectful. Shem and Yafet are very respectful. Good. So then at the end of this source four, Ayomer, Arur Kenan, Noah curses Kenan, who is the firstborn son of Ham. Clearly as a consequence of Ham's disrespect here. Ayomer, Baruch Hashem Shem, Hashem should bless Shem. And Kenan, the Canaanite, should be servants or slaves of the descendants of Shem. Okay, you don't have to be that big of a Bible expert to know that this perfectly foreshadows what's going to happen. The Canaanites, the descendants of Canaan, who are from Ham, are going to be living in Israel, and B'nai Israel from Shem, are going to come and dispossess them. Okay, so that's an excellent way of, of setting out history in the mouth of our ancestor Noah. But does the Torah ever link the conflict of Canaan and Israel to Noah? The answer is no, uh, not at all. The reason why the Canaanites lose the land is because they are evil and God is dispossessing them on that basis. God is giving the descendants of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov the land because of the righteous behavior of the patriarchs, with the caveat that if the descendants of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov are wicked, they too will be dispossessed. 
Does any of this have to do with Noah? No, because Noah can't control the future. So the fact that Noah says this, yes, it sets, it foreshadows the divine will, but Hashem is completely in charge of every last piece of that puzzle. It's not since Noah did this, therefore the outcome was what it was. That's why I'm explaining that it has to do with human behavior and God's response to that. I want to give one other, to give one other example. I love this one. Let's say Bilam would have cursed us. Clearly the Torah is very concerned about this curse and later biblical narratives and prayers, this thing keeps coming up. God was really good to us to thwart Bilam and have him bless us instead of curse us. All right, let's say Bilam somehow cursed us. Okay, so here our commentators, again, really debate the point. Some think he must have had some power because he sure thought he did. And everybody in the story sure thinks he did. Balak is willing to pay him a very huge sum of money to curse Israel. He obviously thinks that this is a valid and potent weapon to use against the Israel. And the fact that Tanakh keeps on mentioning to B'nai Israel, look how good God was to stop him, also suggests that B'nai Israel believed, or at least enough of us believed, that Bilam had the ability to curse us. However, uh, the whole point that the Torah is trying to make is Bilam can't defeat Hashem. That's the whole point. So every time you have a blessing and curse situation, you will find that even if somebody gives a blessing or a curse, that's not what matters. What matters is what Hashem wants anyway. And that's how things will play out based on human behavior. And that's, just, that's not my doing a Mishnah and Rosh Hashanah for you. You just see this throughout all of Tanakh. Give one last example of an interesting unwitting curse. Uh, Rachel, our matriarch, died in childbirth while giving birth to Binyan. Terribly tragic. Okay. Why did she die? I don't know. The Torah doesn't say. But there are Midrashim, and Rashi quotes some of them. If you look at source number six, that when Yaakov fled with his family from Lavan, his father-in-law. Lavan came after them, and Rachel had stolen the trafim, these little household idols. Okay, and Lavan starts searching the tent, and Yaakov is furious that Lavan wants to investigate. So he says in source 6, Anybody who has your idols will die. Yaakov doesn't even realize that Rachel has them. When he said that, he was telling the truth. It wasn't the objective truth. Rachel had stolen them. She did have them. But Yaakov did not know this. Okay, so when he said this, he said this in purity of heart. He wasn't trying to deceive Lavan. He wasn't misleading anybody. He was absolutely certain that nobody in his household had these household idols. Okay, so Rashi says, you see, based on Midrashim, all these things that Rashi quotes are based on earlier Midrash that Lavan unwittingly killed his wife. Excuse me, Yaakov unwittingly killed his wife. Yaakov, by saying, whoever has the statues will die, sure enough, Rachel died because of that. Now, um, the problem, you know, there are a bunch of problems with this type of interpretation. One of them is uh, some significant time passed between the curse and Rachel's death. So the Torah does not at all seem to be linking these two events. Uh, many commentators don't understand Rachel, uh, Yaakov's curse as a curse. He's just saying that this is a, as an exaggerated proclamation of innocence. I swear that nobody has stolen your stuff. And moreover, one could point out that uh, later on, the, the boy who was born in that story when Rachel died, Binyamin, when he grows up, so you know the story of Yosef having one of his officers planting a cup in Binyamin's sack in order to entrap him. So sure enough, the brothers are completely unaware of this. They say in Source 7, Whoever has this 
cup will die. This is the exact same thing as Yaakov. Guess what? Benjamin did not drop dead, not here, and not so far as we could tell any time young. It's simply a very strong rhetorical profession of innocence. And that's exactly what Yaakov was doing. There's no curse. Yaakov did not kill his wife. So even as Ra explains, why did Rachel die? Because childbirth is dangerous, especially in the good old days. The Torah doesn't give any religious explanation for her death. A childbirth can come, unfortunately, with complications. Here was a complication. She died from that. The Torah makes no effort to link this to any misbehavior or unwitting curse of Rachel, of Yaakov, or anybody else. So these are all good examples where there are interpreters who do interpret blessings and curses as meaningful. But the Torah itself never makes that point clear or even unclear. And so it's really critical if we are educators, boy, boy, do we need to pay attention to these things because the messages that we send to children at any age or adults at any age uh, is very powerful. If we say that Yaakov unwittingly killed his wife, that is a very important message, which happens to not be here at all. And the same is true of the other ones. Noach did not affect the outcome. Yitzchak's blessing did not, is not what made Yaakov the third patriarch. And Bilam doesn't have any power over B'nai Israel or anybody else, even if I'm sure he commanded very hefty sums and did very well for himself long before and long after the story, doesn't matter. None of, the Torah never gives off the sense that any of these blessings or curses can help. That's the blessing and curse piece. Move on to another thing. When I was a kid, I was taught I'm not allowed to start going one, two, three, four, five, counting you or anybody else. That was, the, it was a very clear message that I got. So I never did. We used to use Pesukim when we wanted to count the Minyan or for whatever reason. How many people are here? So whatever it's going to be. That's rooted in another teaching of Rashi, again, that emerges from the Talmud, with regard to a parasha ki tisa, we just read Shabbat Shkalim a couple of days ago, it's a good timing. Source number eight. We should count in this format using the chazi shekel, which is a unit of weight of silver, rather than something, or just use this method so that you don't have a plate. So it's the plague part that's weird. What does a plague have to do with the census? It's like the idea of, okay, if you want to conduct a census to, co- to collect one half shekel from every person, I would tell you the reason is because that silver was used for the sockets of the Mishkan. And the message is very beautiful, which is every Jew, rich or poor, everybody could afford a half of a shekel. It was a very, very tiny amount of weight, less than four grams. Okay, I shouldn't say that, less than six grams. Better. So in the meantime, it was, it was something that everybody could contribute this one time to build the Mishkan. Every Jew should be connected to the Mishkan, and that's it. It's a beautiful message of why you needed a chassi shekel. But why a curse? What's the threat of a plague, a divine plague? So Rashi quotes the Gemara in Masachet Yoma that counting Jews can invoke the Ayin Hara, the evil eye, which is a demonic force that unleashes automatically and can start harming people. And Rashi brings as his proof text a story all the way at the end of Sefer Shmuel, where David conducted a, sen- a census, and sure enough, there was a plague and 70,000 people died. Okay, that story requires a lot of attention in its own right. Let's just read what we have over here in source number nine. But Yomar Melech, referring to David, El Yoav, Sarah Chayel Sherito, Shud Na Bechol Shivtei Yisrael Midan Da'ad Be'er Sheva, Ufiduet Ha'am Be'adati Ha'am Mispar Ha'am. He tells Yoav, his general, to go conduct the census. May God bless us with hundred hundredfold. tries to dissuade David from doing this. 
Okay, David says, look, I'm the king and you're not, go do it. So Yoav does it. And alas, this elicits a plague. Seventy thousand people died. So Rashi says, you see, here's the plague that the Torah is threatening. If you conduct the census by going one, two, three, four, five, instead of using the Chatzis Shekel, this can unleash a plague caused by the Ayin Hara. So Ramban, that's Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, gets involved here and says, no, that's not correct at all. The problem in the story in Sefer Shmuel has nothing whatsoever to do with failure to use a chatzis shekel. It's not in the method of census, it's that they conducted a census. There was something bad about conducting a census today that David did that was different from every other census in Tanakh, which is perfectly legitimate. And so Ramban explains, Manishtana, this census from all the other ones, very simple. All the other censuses are conducted during wartime, where a, a king or a general needs to know what is your strength. Your entire strategy relies on that. You need to know what you have to deploy. What are your resources? David was conducting a military census in times of peace. The only reason you're doing that is for glory and honor. You want to brag about your power. Okay, that is a terrible sin, especially for a king of Israel, because the last thing we want to do around here is rely on our military might and not on Hashem. So there's still the theological problem, which David raises in that story, by the way. So why did God kill other people? Why doesn't he punish David? Great question. David is bothered by it too. That's not for today at all. And by the way, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, that's not, that's not relevant for our purposes. Our purposes, Ramban just stresses, the, the very census is the problem rather than that they didn't use a chassis shekel. Asadigon and even Ezra explained the reason why a plague is threatened in, in, in source number eight in Parashat Kisa has nothing whatsoever to do with counting one, two, three, four, five. Why would that cause any harm to anybody? Uh, the problem is any Israelite in the desert who says, I won't even give half a shekel to be part of the people of Israel and to build the house of God. Wow, you're really excluding yourself from the community. That's bad. Everybody should participate in that. Just in this modest way, half a shekel. Obviously, people who were wealthy could give gemstones, large quantities of gold, beautiful dyes and fabrics. Nobody had to do that unless they could afford it, unless they wanted to. But for everybody to simply give this very modest amount of silver, that requires attention. And Rav Sadigo and then even Ezra says, that's what God is threatening plague-wise. So to summarize, blessings and curses from human beings are basically, they function like prayers. God is in charge, and if the prayer matches what God wanted anyway, that's great. But nobody can manipulate or overrule the divine will based on a blessing or a curse. Yaakov did not kill his wife, Rachel, based on what the Torah says. Again, metaphysically, I have no idea what happens. I can't tell you what God does or doesn't do. I'm just trying to tell you what a text tells us. <laughs> that's the best I can hope to do based on our classical parshanut. Right? And the same is true with the Chatzis Shekel. The Chatzis Shekel, the half Shekel, the threat of a plague during a census has zero to do with the evil eye, but it has everything to do with exclusion from the community. There is one area in Tanakh, if you're going to be fair-minded about, where I don't think Tanakh gives a clear-cut answer. And that is, is there such a thing as black magic? Here already we have at least two stories which really could cut either way. One of them is those good old Egyptian magicians. Okay, so I like magic. I like magic shows a lot. I mean, but because to me, they're like riddles. You know, the magician's doing something. You know that he's fooled me. Okay, so the fun part is trying to figure out how did he fool me? 
And if he does a really good job, wow, he's going to charge a lot of money. So I probably won't hire him for my kid's birthday party. But if you were willing to do it for a lower price, I would be willing to do it because, oh, isn't that amazing, right? That kind of thing. So, but what, what about the magicians in Egypt? Were they just really good performers? Or did they actually know how to do stuff that could turn a snake into a stick into a snake? The Torah does not give a clear-cut answer on that. If you're just looking up Shutoshal Mikra, the plain sense of the text, and it says here in source 10, you know, Aaron does that with his stick and it turns into a snake. Okay, that's cool. We know that God is doing that one. Okay, I'm not surprised about that. Hashem can do everything and controls nature. But how about this one? They did it with their lahatayim, through their magic. Okay, here's where the magicians should realize, wait a second, that's not the playbook. How come, how come our own staff is, or snake is gobbling ours up? That never happened before. That could be a sign to them that something is different this time. But, the, but I'm just asking, how do they do that? What are our options? Either there is black magic, which is a capital offense in the Torah. We're not allowed to invoke it, but it's real. And they knew what to do. Or, no, there's a species of cobra in Egypt that actually can harden its body. It looks like a stick. And if you throw it down to the ground, the jolt wakes it up. And then it starts wriggling around like a regular cobra because it is a regular cobra. Okay, so it could be a, a really cool illusion, by the way. Although there, I wouldn't want to be in the front row. Uh, but in the meantime, it can be—it's it's an illusion. It looks like they turned a stick into a snake, but really, 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 it was a snake into a snake. No magic at all, or no. But Latam means that the Torah acknowledges this type of thing is real, even though it is not only prohibited; it's a capital offense for an Israelite to do that sort of thing via magic. Okay, how about the plagues of blood and frogs, where the magicians are still involved? Sources 11 and 12. They also produce blood from water. Okay, so what did they do here? Did they go poof and water really turned into blood or at least some reddish substance that you couldn't drink? Or no, there was a plague of blood going on because Hashem sent it and they took advantage of that and just made it look like they were doing it too. Same thing with the frogs. So, okay, did they actually make frogs come out using magic? Or no, the frogs are coming out anyway because Hashem has already un- unleashed a plague against Mitzrayim, against the Egyptians. And so, okay, so it's a good trick. It was enough to harden Paro's heart, but we know that. Okay, so here are three examples, success stories of Paro's magicians where they were able to achieve an effect. And it sounds like the Torah is saying, if you and I were to take a time machine back and go to the palace, we would see something happen. We'd see a stick turning into a snake. We'd see water turning to blood. We'd see frogs coming out of the Nile. But the question is, okay, but what would we be seeing? Real magic in action or a really cool trick? So the Talmud debates this point, and the truth is from Shitosh Mikra, I do not think you can pull it one way or the other. Source 13, Amar Yochanan, Lama Nikra Shiman Kishafim, why is magic called magic? Shemachishin Pamalia because it undermines Hashem which it, it does. If there is such a thing as black magic, that's immediately suggestive of there is some force in the universe that can be unlo- unlocked that is different from God's will. Right? That's, why it's, that's why it's part of the pagan world. The idea of, of unlocking a force that's not part of God's world, what is that? So that's, that's why it's called Kishafim, according to Rabbi Yochanan. Amar Rabbi Evo, Bar Negri, Amar Bichia Bar Abba, Sure enough, 
there's one member of Chazal who thinks that there are, there are demonic forces that these magicians knew how to harness. And they use black magic. Okay, so there are different, he classifies different kinds of magic, the demonic and black magic. Bottom line is, here is a viewpoint, which several sages hold, that these magicians in Egypt were the real deal. These guys knew how to invoke the world of the demonic, the world of black magic. Carry on. So if they were such magicians, how come they couldn't handle the lice situation, the third plague? They say, oh, this is the hand of God. So it must be it's because lice are very small. And magic can't handle the small. It's a weird answer, but still working within the view that magic is real. It's like, no! <laughs> God forbid to all of these views, right? They couldn't produce anything that's the size of a camel either. It has nothing to do with size. I saw an Arab actually cut up a camel. And then he got up. It was all an illusion. That's the part that I need. You can read, you can read the translation for the whole saga. Bottom line is there are two viewpoints in this Talmudic passage. One is there is such a thing as black magic, which is a capital offense in, in the Torah, but it's real. And these magicians in Egypt had it. They knew what to do. And then there's a whole other position where Papa dismisses it out of hand and says, there is no such thing as black magic and all of it is illusion. They did a trick, it was a really good trick. Whatever it was, it could fool Paro, who might've been evil, but he was, he, was, he was a very smart guy, right? So, and you could fool him and his whole country. Okay, so that's the machloket that you have over here. And it's very important to understand that this is a genuine interpretive debate because the Torah doesn't take a side on this. The Torah prohibits all magical practices and considers it a capital offense, that in no way shows one way or the other. It doesn't tell you if it's real or not. We're just not allowed to do it. Same as we are prohibited to worship idols, but the deities are not real. Okay. And there are other things that we're not allowed to do that are quite real and we're still not allowed to do them. Okay. So which one is magic? So here you have a debate among our sages, one that never goes away. One other story where this happens, which is easily one of the most unusual stories in all of Tanakh, is the only place in all of Tanakh where there is any contact between the world of the living and the world of the dead. Usually there's an absolute separation. Once somebody dies, you don't really know what happens to them, but they don't communicate with us anymore. But here's that one story. It's at the end of Shaul's uh, life where he's already falling apart. So-called Witch of Endor. Shaul is really desperate at this point in the story. He's going to die very shortly thereafter. So he wants to know God's will. So he goes through the legitimate channels, prophecy, dreams, nobody answers him. He's on the outs with Hashem. So then he says, you know, he asks his officers, you know, do you know any witches left who can conjure up the spirit of Shmuel? They're like, yeah, there's one left. They know exactly where she is. They bring him over there. So, and, she, and Shaul disguises himself. He doesn't want to show up as the king. Haisha, source 14. And me, Okay. Slaps a $20 bill on the counter. Maybe I should say a 20-pound bill on the counter and 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 says, okay, I'd like I'd like you to conjure up Shmuel Hanavi, who's already dead at this point in the story. 
The woman sees Shmuel's spirit and she screams and says, you're Shaul, how come you fooled me? Wow, she figured out a lot from this scene. So what I care about today is it sounds like this really happened. And certainly the way the Navi writing the story portrays it, right? That here's a witch who conjured up the spirit of Shmuel and she freaks out and voila, Pasuk Yud Gimel. Don't worry, I'm not going to harm you. I saw this spirit. What does he look like? Shaul figures out that this really is Shmuel. Why have you been, why did you bother me? I was doing so nicely wherever I was and suddenly you just yanked me out of that world to come speak to you. Look, I'm desperate. I'm sorry. Okay, the point of the story for our purposes today is it sounds like here's a witch who did a really good job. It sounds like she brought up the spirit of Shmuel and was able to, again, it's a capital offense to do this in the Torah. But the question is, is it even possible? Is there such a thing as witchcraft? That's really the question for our Shmuel. So the truth is, our rabbis debate this very, very furiously, because it really depends on what you think. There are various geonim, like Rav Shmuel ben Chofnigaon, who said, there's no such thing as witchcraft. This story is written from the perspective of Shaul, but it is not true, because it is not possible to call up the spirit of the dead. Oh, so what did Shaul hear? The woman had a partner who was hiding under the table and who sounded really creepy and stuff. You know, you can easily do this and have a whole fraud. Uh, but it worked. So Shaul walked out that day thinking that Shmuel really spoke to him. But the whole story is written not from an objective point of view that this witch conjured up the spirit of Shmuel, but rather it was the whole thing was a hoax. But it was enough to convince Shaul that he was in trouble. That's his view. Of Sajigaon, uh, he finds it that an uncomfortable position here. It really sounds like it's happening. So he suggests the following. He says, also, there's no such thing as witchcraft. This woman was a quack. But today, Hashem sent Shmuel's spirit, which is why the woman screams in panic. She's like, wait a second, this doesn't really work. What's going on here? So I, I find that very appealing. So Rapsadi Gaon is with the plain sense of the text. This is happening in the story. Uh, but he is not willing to admit that there is a witch who can conjure up the spirit independently of Hashem. And then there's Radak and Ramban who just say, look, this is prohibited. You're not allowed to prohibited magic, but it could be real. The story makes it seem like she's just able to do this. She has this skill. And she's done it before and she could do it again. Even not today. Rav Sadigon, because we don't know better, can say this is the only time in human history this really happened. Because here Hashem did a miracle. He wanted... Uh, Shmuel to speak to Shaul on a singular occasion. So this is a good example where I have no answers for you. To be fair with the text, both the Egyptian magicians and this witch of Endor, it sounds like it could be, they could all be a fraud and that they just did a really good job fooling the people you needed to fool. Or Hashem was involved directly in the case of this witch. Or no, there really is such a thing as black magic. I don't think, and it's prohibited regardless. So just to summarize this last, you know, to summarize all of our different things, uh, human curses and blessings are prayers in Tanakh rather than things that control any outcome. Uh, a head count does not automatically elicit a plague in the Torah. Rather, it has to do with 
uh, religious attitude and righteous behavior and Hashem is in charge. Uh, the only thing that is left open from today's shiur is what's the deal with witchcraft anyway. And so I can't answer that question. And rabbinic tradition debated it very forcefully. There certainly were sages that we've already seen who believe that there is such a thing as witchcraft in the world of the demonic black magic. And there was a whole other team of sages that did not, that denounced it and thought that this was wrong. Rambam, as is very well known, because boy, boy was he not shy, was aware of the fact that many Talmudic rabbis believed in witchcraft. And he just said that was based on pagan influence. It is folly, it is nonsense, there is no such thing. And Ramban, Nachmanides, came right on after him and said, no, that's not correct. There certainly is witchcraft, it's just illegal, we're not allowed to do that. And obviously Ramban grants that many people who say that they practice witchcraft may be quacks, but he won't deny the possibility of witchcraft. So I remember, you know, I'll, I'll close with this point, Rabban Lichtenstein, Zichonali Bracha. So when I was a rabbinical student, so we had a press conference with him every now and then and asked the rabbi session, basically, in Israel. And so one person asked what he thought about magic. So Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, the way that he answered any of these press conference questions was, you would ask a question, and on the spot, he would give you a 30-minute long, perfectly organized mini shiwa, working out every possible facet of the issue. So I was really, I was like, wow, that's a cool question. I wonder what he will do. So he said, this, this was his answer. I can almost say it verbatim. And not even burden the time frame of our shiur. Uh, Rambam didn't believe in it, and Rambam did. And then he stopped. This was a flabbergastingly short answer, and everybody marveled that that was it. He moved on to the next question after that. So everybody, of course, after the shiur was an, was everybody's an expert and was a Monday morning quarterback. Some of my friends were disappointed in that answer. Like Ravana Lichtenstein is a giant. He actually is allowed to take a side on this issue. I'm like, leave him alone. What do you want? He's quoting his two all-time favorite medieval rabbis who are at loggerheads with each other, and it's an unverifiable debate. There's no biblical text that supports A or B, and there's no, there's no rabbinic consensus on this issue. So I thought what he did was very elegant. It was a way of saying, I have emunah chachamim. I know that these were great sages. One's probably right and one's probably wrong, but how can I know which one is which? So I thought that that was just great. I thought it was a wonderful answer, and it's a good way to answer, to address this thing. I want to close with one other note you know, to those who do educate. Uh, one of the hardest things of childhood education is that you can't quote a multiplicity of viewpoints. You can't. It would confuse the kids more than they already are confused. So very often, the standard mode is Kumash and Rashi. I'm all in favor of that. My, my plea whenever I, I teach educators is for things like the Rashi that we've seen today and the Midrashic channels, which lead to inevitable superstitious beliefs, don't do those Rashis until the kids are old. And then when you quote, when, you're, when they're older, okay, then you can quote him, and here's a dissenting view that throws the view out. And, and that, that you can see right away that there's a major debate over the extent of what I think of as superstition in the sense of, are there any powers that rival Hashem? So my answer today was absolutely not. Tanakh is pretty consistent on that point. The one possible exception being witchcraft in the Tanakh in the two stories that we saw, which again, there's no impact from the witchcraft in Tanakh, but I can tell you it's a possibility of it, that it does exist, even though I, I don't particularly live my life uh, revolving around that possibility. But that's a personal decision rather than a, a knowledge issue. Uh, so educators have to be very sensitive, especially to young kids, but even to adults. If you only present one view of any machloka, but especially on things like this, adults walk away thinking, oh, this is what the Torah teaches on something, or this is what the rabbis think. And for sensitive issues like this, it's really critical to present 
both sides or multiple sides, that people can see, okay, we Jews have been debating these unverifiable issues from time immemorial. In many cases, the biblical text simply does not support these views. Occasionally they do, or at least could support these views. And at least that way you can come up with a more sophisticated way of understanding how this all plays out. With that, I, I'm happy that oh, I'd said that there would be time for questions and answers at the end, so I paced myself accordingly. And I see that there's already some stuff in the chat. So let me just see what I've been missing. Okay. Who's saying this? Birkat Asher. Thank you very much, Asaf, for quoting this source. Uh, I, I think it, the comment actually just elicits, in other words, he's rightly linking the two stories, uh, what Yaakov said about Rachel and what the brothers then said, what turned out to be about Binyamin. These were two unwitting proclamations of innocence. But the other way around, the, whoever the, I don't know who the Birkat Asher is, forgive my ignorance on that. Uh, what matters is, no, it's the other way around. It's not that, oh my goodness, how could the brothers have done this knowing that what Rachel, Yaakov did to, Ra- to Rachel? That's presuming that Rashi is right. So all I can tell you is, let's go back, scroll back to the earlier part of the Shi'ur. There is a significant amount in the Farshim who reject that entire line totally. So the Birkat Asher is certainly consistent within Rashi's view and takes for granted that it is correct. So all I'm saying is, I don't know how God works. All I can tell you is that the Torah certainly does not connect this curse to the death of Rachel. Okay, why can't we say that there is a third view of Egyptian magicians, which is Hashem wanted the Egyptian magicians to achieve their objective to test the Jews and to create a miracle for the Egyptian magicians? Robert, that's a fabulous point, and maybe you're right. The only reason I'm less inclined to that, there's no question that it's a fair possibility in the abstract, the word belatehem. meaning that they use their magical channels, makes that one harder. It doesn't mean that you're wrong. It just means that the text doesn't easily lend itself to that way. I think that the fairer two ways of reading the text is they use their magical channels, which either means there really are magical channels, or they use their optical illusions. In other words, the two views that the sages in Masechet Sanhedrin play out seem to be much closer to the mark. That said, you're right. I can't tell you that Hashem wasn't helping them today, although they seemed very confident even before they knew that there would be any divine help. But all, all, all the same, whatever was going on inside of their minds, I can't tell you. So, but, but a very fair point. If there's no such thing as witchcraft and magic, why does the Torah forbid it directly? Uh, because it's part of the pagan world. Magic reflects, you're trying to manipulate a deity. In this case, if you try to do magic on Hashem, you think that Hashem is in nature, and you think that you can manipulate him. As soon as you do that, you're treat, even if you just believe in this one God, you believe in the wrong God. Because our God isn't like that. So you might be a, a monotheist or some version of that. You believe in one deity. But that deity that you believe in has zero to do with Hashem. Because Hashem is above nature. You can't manipulate Hashem. And so, and again, going back to the question from a different angle, I mentioned specifically to, because I was expecting this question to show up, the Torah prohibits idolatry too. Okay. In no way does that acknowledge the legitimacy of other deities. It just means we're not allowed to do it. Why does it prohibit it? Because pagans all over the place worship these guys. And so too, pagans all over the place practice magic. These are prohibited as capital offenses because they all belong to the world of the pagan. Of the pagan. And they are very antithetical to what Judaism and what the Torah really is. If Ramban believes magic existing, or existed, I guess, how deal with Ramban, excuse me, how deal with the magic being a power that rivals Hashem, which seems to dispute a fundamental axiom of the Torah? Right, those rabbis who 
who believe in black magic have to believe that there is some force in the universe. They call them Shadim, they call it Ayinahara, which are also Shadim or Malachechabara. Some forces that are dark that don't answer to Hashem. And you're right. So I'm I'm with you, Robert. I'm much happier with <laughs> with the fundamental axiom as it is portrayed, just because it doesn't sound like anybody ever rivals Hashem Tanakh. I'm all good with, with your question. I'm just saying that those who believe in the world of the demonic, and they're again they're great Talmudic sources to rely on. Uh, they believe that, yes, there is such a world out there. And Rambam said, that's paganism. It's, you know, your question is what Rambam fought so hard to destroy and that he failed to destroy. Right? He really wanted to root this out because he believed that this was outright Abu Dazara. It's not just nonsense, which it is also according to his view, but it's worse than that. It's, it's the idea of having any rival force in the universe to Hashem is so anti what Tanakh is all about. And I agree with, I certainly think that Rambam has better pshutosh on the There's no question that Tanakh uh, favors Hashem's power as, an, as a, an absolute force, not one that can be toned down by rival forces in the universe. Thank you. Question. Why do you think that superstitious understandings of the crowd become the mainstream PS that's Sina? Hello, Sina. I see you now. Cool. Welcome. It's so good to see you in person. And you have a wonderful, you have a wonderful group over here. I don't, I, I don't like terms like the mainstream. That's just anti my whole being. Different Jews think different things. There's no question that from time immemorial, there were superstitious Jews and there were not superstitious Jews. Rambam worked as hard as he did to root out superstition because there was so much of it in his time and drove him bananas. He hated it. He said, this is so off the mark and this is so paid. Okay, so he tried to shoot it down. Okay, the mystics and other people who believed in these independent forces that could be harnessed fought back by publishing the Zohar and by getting a lot more public about their teachings. Right? Okay, so whatever Rambam thought he would achieve, it ended up you know, backfiring on him, basically. I'm not criticizing his tactic. I, I like his approach. I'm just like, this is idolatry, and let's get rid of it. So he did a good job in, in being very forceful. Uh, that all being said, it, it didn't work. So I don't want to say it's the mainstream. There's no question that many, many, many Jews of all different communities around the world are heavily influenced by various strands of mysticism, particularly Lurianic Kabbalah. And it's, it's, it's hardwired in many ways that Jews don't realize that they're even following these things. So I remember flying home with people who are not particularly superstitious, friends of mine uh, from Israel. We were all coming back on the same flight, and these guys were all wearing those red strings and other stuff that they picked up in spot or wherever they got it. Now you can buy it in any gift shop. Spot, you have to go for the real good stuff. And so, uh, so I let them have it. You guys are a bunch of idolaters. What are you doing? We were kids. And they're like, oh, you non-believer, how could you not be wearing one of these things? Sure enough, we ran out of fuel and had to make an emergency landing in Germany for that flight. Okay, so I come running over to them and say, see, it's because you're idolaters and God is smiting us. I did not think this for a second ever. Not then, not now. We have no idea why God does stuff. And I don't think that God is specifically making us run out of fuel. We ran out of fuel. I don't don't need to find a direct divine causation. I was having a good time. They're like, no, it's because you're not wearing this thing. Had you been wearing it, of course, we would have made it safely home to New York in in one time. So we were having a good time given, given that uh, none of us really cared about these strings and we, none of us really thought that there was any correlation between string wearers or not and the fact that we ran out of gas and had to land in Germany. Uh, yeah, so there's no question that it's out there and very widespread. I also think that fear is always a factor, right? I and mean, look, there's no question that we live in a, every world. I don't just mean today. Every time, any place, there's so much uncertainty in the world. The idea that you might be able to gain some kind of control over your life or over the world by having a string or whatever stuff you use is really handy, right? It makes you feel good. 
Nebuch doesn't always work, and, and, and people find that out the hard way sometimes. But all the same, yeah, I'm a big believer in tefillah, knowing that Hashem doesn't always give us what we are praying for. Right? We, can, we can easily retain our connection with Hashem and develop it very profoundly without relying on these charms. So there's no question that they're out there, and I don't care what kind of war anybody's going to wage. If Rambam couldn't make it go away, uh, good luck to any rabbi who's going to make that effort. That doesn't mean we can't try on a local level to at least teach more responsibly so that people don't lapse into that. A lot of people just do stuff because what do you have to lose? Like, let's just do this thing because, hey, if it helps, it helps. And if it doesn't help, all right, I haven't lost anything, right? I imagine a lot of people do that kind of stuff too. Even if they know, that, I don't believe in this at all. But you know, what if that one in a billion chance, let's say this other person's right. Okay, so let's just do it. I wish people would have a little more inner strength and belief in Hashem than that, but they don't. So I think that's just a, you know, it's a short, short answer to a much more profound question. Of course, there are many Talmudic sources. Thank you, Avi. Many Talmudic sources. This is the tip of the proverbial iceberg in this one. I believe in blessings and curses. There's no question that some of our parshanim understand that when Yitzchak blessed Yaakov, that was very meaningful. In other words, they trust the characters. There are certainly many Gemara that talk about the immense power that Bilam wielded, that he actually did have this knowledge of a moment of divine wrath. I'm well aware of these sources, and I think that it's important that the rabbis debate all these things all the way through. What I did today in this shiur was not to tell you what is right. I was interested in what does the biblical text say and not say. I was a pure Tanakh guy while being quite wary of and aware of, we should be aware of these things, of all these different rabbinic debates on every last one of the cases. Rashi says what he says about counting people too. And it's based on a Gemara, Masachet Yoma. And that said, there are Parshanim who flatly reject that whole approach because it doesn't match any biblical text. All I was trying to say is not what Hashem does when somebody goes one, two, three, four, five. I don't know. What I do know is the people who think that there is no biblical text to link this to are correct. So that, that, that was what the Shiro was about. It's what Tanakh and superstition can do rather than is there, is there an Ayin Hara? So the Rav Lichtenstein just said, okay, Ramban thinks no, and Ramban thinks yes, we're done. And obviously it's not just these two people. Everybody has a point of view. Is there a way of viewing the Kabbalistic ideas of Klippa and Sidra Akhra, non-superstition, superstitious? I'm sure there is. I'm sure that a real sophisticated Kabbalist actually cannot lapse into the world where they're controlling Hashem. And I'm simply not an expert enough to tell you where that sophistication lies. I can tell you that popular Kabbalah is typically bandied about by non-experts uh, is very superstitious and worse, right? But I'm sure that there might be true mekubalim, like pe- the real people who are experts in Torah and experts in what Kabbalah really teaches, very well might come up with a non-superstitious approach to this where they don't think that they're manipulating Hashem through tefillah or doing mitzvot or having things, whatever those things might be, and all the strength to them. I'm all in favor of mysticism when applied correctly. All I can tell you is that popular Kabbalah which was understood that way in Rambam's time also, let alone now, uh, goes far, far away from where Tanakh had us. So I prefer the biblical model. And this one, I think Rambam did that. Thank you for joining us at the Chaburah, join our WhatsApp group um, for a sneak peek. Okay, that's a good ad there. In response to the black magic and other source that acts against God's will, Chronicle, Satan provoked Israel, but Shmuel says God provoked Israel. The sages teach that this isn't a contradiction. Even, well, okay, well, it depends what Satan means over there. Parsha Nud is a whole lot of things to say about this. It requires more shirim. Always, always in favor of that. 
There's so many psukim that require this kind of attention. I tried to give you some of my favorites that I think are really at the heart of where the rabbinic debates lie. On that incredibly happy note, I want to thank everybody for coming. Thank the Chabura, Sina, Ohad, everybody else, the leadership of the Chabura for doing it. I look forward to learning with you next week about uh, contemporary archaeological scholarship and how that does and does not intersect with tradition, the Jewish tradition, that is, and how, how we can use it as a tool and where the pros and the cons lie in that one. See you next week, God willing, and I will see you soon. Thank you so much, and call to you all the very Thank best. you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you.